You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. I am so excited. We are in the month of April. What does the month of April mean? It means we're on core value number four. And we're aligning the uh, acrostic through the, the name Gospel Light. Uh, and we've come to the letter P. The letter P. And here we are discussing our, our, our next level statement and our core value statement. Check it out on the screen. It's what the month of April is all about. People matter more than projects. Did you hear me this morning? People matter more. And then practicing hospitality at the next level. And we're going to see as we dive into this series called Dinners with Jesus, that no one, and I repeat, no one, practice hospitality at the next level more than the Lord Jesus Christ. In my introduction message before Easter, I pointed out three reasons why the Son of Man came. Now, something we need to understand is this, that the reference to Jesus as the Son of Man in Scripture is referring to his humanity. And the reference to Jesus as the Son of God in Scripture is referring to his deity. And so here we have in his humanity, the perfect man, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, came for three reasons. The first reason we discovered together in in Scripture was found in, uh, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, where it says that the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save, right? Jesus came, the Son of Man, in His humanity, the perfect sinless Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Secondly, there's a passage of Scripture in the book of Mark chapter number 10 verse 45 that says this, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus not only came to seek and to serve, but he came to, uh, uh, seeking to save, he came to serve and to sacrifice. But then there's an odd one. It almost doesn't fit with the others. It says in Luke chapter number 7 and verse 34 that he came eating and drinking. We said this, he came to sip, and he came to sup. The first two statements are statements of purpose. They tell us why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save. He came to serve and to sacrifice. But the second, the third one, tells us how he came. It's a statement of method. It's a statement of process. It says he came eating, and he came drinking. In the Old Testament, there's a prophet by the name of Daniel. In Daniel chapter number 7, Daniel uses this phrase, the Son of Man, almost as a label for one who comes before God to receive authority over all the nations. It represents this idea that when the Son of Man come, he'll come in power. He'll come with, uh, on the, uh, in the clouds of heaven with the angels of glory. But how did Jesus come? Eating and drinking. The Jews of Jesus' day would have said the Son of Man will come to vindicate the righteous and defeat God's enemies. They would have never said he's coming eating and drinking. They would have never thought that he would come to save the lost. Oh, they would have said, oh, he'll come, but the Son of Man will come in glory and he'll come in power. Not eating and drinking. Don't lower him to that level. Waffle House, are you kidding me? Not Jesus. No way. Luke is not just talking about eating and drinking to live. Luke is not just talking about the Son of Man came eating and drinking for sustenance. Look at it closer. Because he's accused of his enemies of doing this in excess. If you look closely at the verse, it says the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. How many of you think Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard? Don't raise your hand now. What a trick question. He was not a glutton, and he was not a drunkard. But I'll tell you what he was. 
It was not a false accusation to say that he was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. They were absolutely wrong about saying that he ate in excess, but I can tell you that the grace of God is always in excess. He was a friend of sinners. It was not necessarily factual that Jesus was like seriously in love with food and drink, although I'm sure he liked it. But he was accused of being a friend of sinners because of his association with those who went to dinner oftentimes with him. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Question real quickly, are you, am I, a friend of sinners? You know, as Christians, we tend to build our own little Christian world. I have. We choose Christian doctors. We prefer Christian hairdressers. We attach Christian stickers to our cars that we bought from Christian friends. We read Christian books and we watch Christian movies. Most of us were more close to non-Christians at the time we were saved than we are now. And then we get removed from them as quickly as possible. To an extent, I understand this. To an extent, I get that we want to stay away from worldly associations. And I understand that we're not condoning bad behavior. But what I think it's done to many of us is it's caused us to recreate our own world, and this is often a small, protected bubble that we can control. And the point is understandable. To an extent, I understand what we're doing here. But wait a minute. Jesus still went to unbelievers. And he had this method, this process he did it with. He went clearly in Scripture eating and drinking. He was a friend to sinners. It almost seems as if one of the mission strategies of the Lord was a long meal that stretched into the evening. Jesus did evangelism and Jesus did discipleship around the table with grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and fruit of the vine. Luke's gospel is full of stories of dinners with Jesus. This sermon series is way too short. There's a whole lot more to just a three-part or four-part sermon series because it seems when you read the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's just left a meal. And even when Jesus is not eating, there are references to food that abound in the Gospels. Most of the parables involve eating and drinking. In Luke 14, he tells of a parable of a great banquet. In Luke 15, he talks, uh, gives the parable of the prodigal son. And at the end of the story, if you remember, they threw a party. A great party. A great feast. Celebrating the fact that the prodigal son had come home. In Luke chapter number 16, he contrasts a rich man who fared sumptuously every day at 501 Prime. And then there was this poor man who was willing to eat the crumbs from the rich man's table. Jesus spent his time eating and drinking. A lot of his time. He lived the value that people matter more than projects. He practiced hospitality at the next level. Jesus modeled grace at the dinner table. His excess of food and his excess of grace seem to be linked together. Because you see, in the ministry of Jesus, meals were grace. Meals were community. Meals were action, mission and action. The meals of Jesus represent something so much bigger than just food. They're more than just food. They were special occasions. They represent friendship, community, and welcome. In fact, the dinners of Jesus are simply a message, a window into the message of grace. So over the next three weeks, I challenge you to be faithful. Over the next three weeks, let's pull up our chair to the table and let's have dinner with Jesus. And here's why we're going to do it. Because we want to learn from the dinner. There's nothing in the Bible that Jesus ever did that the purpose of it was not to teach us something. Jesus wants us to learn from these dinners. So today, I'm going to give you part two of this series on dinners with Jesus. And the title of my message is simply this. Who is saying, or might we say who is showing grace at dinner? 
Now, the word grace is the word that oftentimes we use before we have a meal, right? We might say something like this. Hey, who's saying grace today? And then we call on someone. Hey, Tony, would you say grace over the meal? Anybody ever done that by chance? All right. Three, four, good, five. All right. A little bit of, actually the first service when I asked that, we had like 100, nobody raised their hands. And then I said it again, and like everybody raised their hands. So what I determined was, when you ask questions, you wake people up. So you're awake now, right? I did a little study about saying grace. Here's what I came up with, and I'll read you this. A grace is a short prayer or thankful praise said before eating. The term most commonly refers to Christian traditions. Some traditions hold that grace and thanksgiving impart a blessing which sanctifies the meal. In English, reciting such a prayer is sometimes referred to as saying grace. The term comes from the ecclesiastical Latin term. And this is, this, I hope I can pronounce this correctly. Uh, gratarium actio. It means act of thanks. Theologically, the act of saying grace is derived from the Bible. An example of that would be Acts chapter number 27 in verse number uh, 35. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. The practice reflects the belief that humans should thank God because he is the origin of everything. In fact, most nations have some form of saying grace before a meal. Here's three that I found. Number one, you've got Israel. In Israel, the Jews would have this, uh, something called the Berkat Hamazan. It's a, a Hebrew word for blessing on nourishment. And Jews all over the world say a prayer before they eat a certain type of food. For instance, if they say a prayer before eating fruit, here's the prayer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us fruit of the vine. In Japan, the Japanese, honey, start a meal, and uh, they bow their heads. They bring their hands together. Did I do that good? And they say this. Anyway. Paula, help me. Can you say it? I know, I know. I text Paula because her mom's Japanese. And I said, how do you pronounce it? She sent me how to pronounce it, but I tried to memorize it. Itadadakasumo. Something like that. And it basically means this, receive the blessing. But the weirdest one of all was a Philippine prayer. And here's how they give the blessing over a bountiful rice harvest. They do a dance that looks like a rooster scratching the ground. So I looked it up on the internet, found it, tried to practice it in my office. I never could get it down and I'm embarrassed to do it in front of you. But everyone has a way, it seems, in every nation of saying grace. This morning, my message is not just about saying grace at every meal. It's about showing grace at meal. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, church. It's not complicated. All of us can do this. We're really good at eating and drinking. All we've got to do now is just add people to it. He came eating and drinking. It's not always easy to do. It takes not just saying grace, but showing grace. And sometimes hospitality involves people invading your space or going places where you don't feel comfortable. It might involve eating with people who are not in your social circle. It might involve eating with a person who has hurt you. It might involve eating with sinners. In a moment, we're going to see that's basically who Jesus ate with. In our stories, it's publicans and prostitutes and Pharisees. Let's see how Jesus had dinner with these people. Two dinners, one in Luke 5, one in Luke 7. So join me. Let's have dinner with Jesus. And let's learn two very valuable lessons this morning. Lesson number one. In this first story, we're going to look for the lost like the grace-giving Savior does. You might say it like this. We're going to learn together to act with grace and show grace to others. The first account of dinner with Jesus is the conversion of someone by the name of Matthew. Anybody ever heard of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Anybody ever heard of that? That's the Matthew I'm talking about. He was one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. and He, first, he wrote the first gospel in the Word of God. Matthew is recorded with two names, Mark and Luke, and we're reading out of Luke this morning, so we're going to find that he was called 
Levi. This was the name he had before he became a Christian. This was his lost name. It means to be joined to something. And no doubt, Matthew was joined to something. It wasn't Jesus. It was the world. But Matthew himself calls himself Matthew. In fact, when he lists the apostles and he comes to his name, he doesn't call himself Levi. Matthew calls himself Matthew because he understood what Jesus did for him. Matthew actually means gift of God. He saw what God had done for him. He was no longer joined to the world. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Oh, this week I had the privilege of having our our adult Uh, single adult Bible study in our home on every Wednesday and we invited Carrie Montgomery from the Hope Movement to come. She's the director of the Hope Movement. We said, Carrie, would you share your story? Carrie, for 30 minutes, poured her heart out to all of us sitting in my living room and she told us her story. Her story of, of, of drugs and alcohol and addiction and, and how Jesus radically delivered her from all of this. And she's following him with reckless abandon and love and passion. And the tears she shed in our living room were, were moving. And all of us were weeping and crying as we determined as a small group, as a lighthouse, to make the Hope Movement our ministry mission. And then on Thursday, Scott and I had the privilege of going to the convention center, and they asked me to drive a bus to be a shuttle for the elderly that were parking three or four blocks away from the Horner Hall, and so I gladly decided I would do that. So I'm driving this bus back and forth, and finally it's time to eat, so I go into the banquet hall with about 800 people, and for the rest of the evening, we're watching videos of men who have been delivered from a life of addiction, and now have been restored to life, and have come to know Jesus Christ, and their testimonies are so powerful and amazing. They were old. They're not old creatures anymore. They've been made new by the blood of Jesus Christ. The grace of God in action. The mission of Jesus Christ. You see, the tension in the passage we're about to read, and by the way, there's going to be probably a little tension in the room as well. Anytime you talk about being friends with with, with sinners to religious people, it gets uncomfortable. And so there's tension in this passage. And it's around the occupation of the person who invited Jesus to dinner. You see, Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was a publican. Look with me in Luke chapter 5 here, and beginning in verse 27. And after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. So Jesus says to Matthew, to Levi, follow me. And leaving everything, he arose and followed him. Now, understanding something about Matthew, listen to this. He was a tax collector. He would have been classified a sinner by his own countrymen. He would have been someone who has been accused of abandoning his family and choosing the Roman government over them. As a publican, he would have been associated with the low life of the world. His best friends would have been sinners. His best friends would have been prostitutes. And his best friends would have been thieves. Publicans were generally dishonest people. They oftentimes abused their power and they were considered traitors to the Jews. This is who we're talking about. This is the Matthew we're addressing in our story this morning. Notice it says here in Matthew chapter number 5 and verse 27 that he went out and saw a tax collector. In The Chosen, the documentary on the life of Christ, they have it looking something like this. Would you like to go to that dinner party with me? Let's go together, shall we? Let's go into that dinner party and learn something from a dinner with Jesus. You see, in Matthew chapter number 5 and verse 27, it's obvious that it wasn't Matthew who saw Jesus. It was Jesus who saw Matthew. The Lord saw Matthew and what he could be, not what Matthew was. And I've got some good news for everybody under the sound of my voice. God sees right through you this morning. And as we attempt to get you to walk across the street into a ministry fair and walk by tables where God is saying, I want to use you in the media ministry. I want to use you as an usher. I want to use you in the benevolence ministry. God is saying, I have a plan for your life. I have something I want you to do. There's more for you than just sitting in a pew. There's more for you than just sitting in a seat. God sees you, not where you are, but where you could be for him. This is a beautiful lesson for us to learn as we attempt to sign up this morning to put ourselves on the line for Jesus. Notice what Matthew was doing when Jesus called him. 
It says he was sitting at the tax booth. Look at it again in verse 27. Go back to verse 27 where it's, okay, there it is. Sitting at the tax booth. It doesn't say that Matthew saw Jesus sitting in church. It doesn't say Matthew saw Jesus reading. Or, uh, excuse me, Jesus saw Matthew reading his Bible. It says Jesus saw Matthew ripping people off at the tax booth. Ripping people off. What a display of God's amazing grace at work. Jesus is calling Matthew, who later penned the gospel of Matthew, and he demonstrates that the Son of God has come for all sinners. Luke 5, 27, again, he says, Follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. No one is too far gone, but that the grace of God cannot save him, including Matthew. Now, publicans would have been considered the worst of the worst. That's Matthew. Tax collectors would have been someone who would have been assumed to be beyond all hope. But what Jesus had done for the last three years of his ministry is he had spent it shattering those rigid religious opinions. In fact, Jesus made a a, a point of finding society's worst and elevating them to a status equal to the rest. He demonstrated that every human being can have the opportunity to know him. And when Matthew got saved, whoo, a lot like Carrie, maybe a lot like you, a lot like folks that I've met in my lifetime, they have a heart for the lost. And Matthew put on a dinner party. Check it out in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 29. Levi, Matthew, he made a great feast in his house. It was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. Notice Matthew held a party and invited everyone to come. It wasn't a small party. It was a great feast with a large company of people. He wanted to invite his old friends to meet his new friend. And so they came. They came to see the one who caused Matt to give up his job. How crazy is that? Hey, Matt, you saw Gaius. Matt, Gaius, uh, you're taken care of by Quintus. You, you've got more money than most Jews. You're, you're wealthy. Matt, what are you thinking? No wonder they came. Matt must have gotten a better deal. What else? Why else would Matthew give up what he had? The fact that the house was full suggests that Matthew had great influence. It also suggests that Matthew had a heart for the lost. But notice what happened at the dinner with Jesus here in Matthew, or rather Luke 5.30. It says, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Can you see with me in that text the Pharisees and the scribes peeking through the doorway, arrogant, highbrow Pharisees and scribes, standing there with their arms crossed, disgusted at what they saw, murmuring. Look at those people. Look at them. Bunch of losers. Look at them over there smoking cigarettes. (laughs) Disgusting. (laughs) Man, look at that person going into that nightclub. Boy, what's wrong with this world today? Those people. This makes me sick. Murmuring. Have you ever murmured at the way non-Christians behave? Have you ever looked at people that don't live just like you and found yourself murmuring about them like we see here in the text? Murmuring. I don't think it's an issue of our convictions about their behavior as much as it is, is the attitude that we have towards the people. There's a lot of things that I don't do. But my attitude towards the people is what I think we need to address this morning as the problem. Jesus made sinners feel welcome in his presence. And so, consequently, he felt welcome in theirs. But the Pharisees made everyone uncomfortable. And the problem here is not the party. The Pharisees didn't have a problem with the party. They understood the kingdom of God was going to be a big party. And if you don't think heaven's going to be a big party and a lot of fun and incredible and a marriage supper of the Lamb and, oh, it's going to be incredible. The party was not the problem. The problem was the guest list. It was who was going to the party. 
It was the fact that Jesus was parting with sinners. But notice how Luke describes the guest. It's interesting, isn't it? In verse number 29, look at it. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it says that Levi made him a great feast in the house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled and said, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Did you see the difference? Luke describes his companions as tax collectors and what? Others. But the Pharisees describe the dinner guest as tax collectors and sinners. The message is obviously clear that those others did not measure up to the religious standards of the Pharisees. And so Jesus overhears in the next text, he overhears the grumbling of the disciples and he steps in to answer their accusation. Look at it in verse 31. Jesus answers those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Aren't you glad today that Jesus has come for sinners' repentance? Amen? Can we not all admit today, together, that God's grace has saved us? It's, it's his amazing grace that we too are sinners. Hey, such were some of you. Such was I. Like that song that Hillsong United wrote in 2013. The scandal of grace. It starts like this. Grace, what have you done? What have you done? Murdered for me on the cross. Accused in absence of of wrong. My sin washed away in his blood. Too much to make sense of it all. It's too much. I can't comprehend his grace in my life. We need to be amazed at the grace of God. This is what we learn at the dinner table with Jesus. Jesus teaches us in this dinner to look for the lost like the Savior does and to act with grace towards others. This is what Jesus was doing. Two weeks ago, I challenged our church family after the first message in this series in the month of April to have someone over your house that you don't know very well. Maybe someone at work who's lost. Maybe someone you know who is saved that knows lost people and say, hey, hey, invite four of your friends over to the house. We we just want to have a dinner party. Anybody taking me up on that yet? It's the lesson Jesus is teaching us. I thought about this several years ago. Mike Griffith is a deacon here at Gospel Light. He was serving in our sound booth this morning. Years ago, there was a man that came to our church by the name of Dante. Dante was a, a rough unit. He didn't look like the rest of us. I mean, look at us. Just look at us. Just look at us. We look good, don't we? We know how to dress up and come to church. There's nothing wrong with that. I I love sports jackets. I love to look nice. Dante did not look like me. But after church, we invited Dante over for lunch, and Dante came and came and came and finally got saved and baptized and and then Dante started a ministry in our church called YPOA, Young Prophets of America. It lasted for several years. Just out of curiosity, anybody remember Dante in the room? Raise your hand. Anybody? Good. About 30 people. Wow. Dante had a friend named Mike Griffith. Oh, Mike didn't look like any of us. Mike's hair was down to here. Several earrings, tattoos everywhere. Oh, Mike was interesting. He didn't talk. It was kind of unusual. And so Dante came, comes up to Mike and says, hey, listen, I go to the preacher's house every Sunday after, after church. You want to come with me? He goes, I, I don't know if I want to go to the pastor's house. I'm, I'm, he looks just like he probably wouldn't want me over. He said, oh, no, he, he, he likes people that don't look like him. So Mike Griffith comes over our house. He doesn't say a word for weeks. He doesn't even talk. You say hi to Mike. He just looks at you like we have dinner. We gather around our table as we have now for 30 years. We hold hands. We pray. We say grace and show grace at the meal. And all of a sudden, Mike starts talking. The next thing you know, not that he had to. We weren't saying anything to him. But he started kind of dressing a little bit different. It didn't matter to us, but he did. He just, you could sense that Mike was just adjusting some things in his life. Not, not that he had to. He, just, he was just feeling the grace of God in his life. And all of a sudden, the next thing you know, Mike gets saved. Mike gets baptized. Several years later, Mike sees a girl by the name of Micah Willoughby, who now is Micah Griffith, a graduate of Champion Christian College. Mike marries Micah. Mike, gets, Mike becomes a deacon. Mike, in a month, has become a daddy. Grace, what have you done? What have you done, Grace? 
You see, what God is asking us to do is not look at the people in hot springs as so different than us. Sinners, God is asking us to embrace and love and care and invite them over for dinner. Number two, the second thing we learn in Luke chapter 7 at the second dinner is to love the Lord like a grateful sinner does. Or we could say it like this, appreciate the grace that is shown to you. Now, just for a moment, before I give you this story, I want to invite you to a dinner party in Hot Springs, Arkansas. In fact, I think what I'll do is just invite Josh and his wife, Susan. You guys want to come? We're going to go listen to this evangelist. He's been preaching all over the world, Josh, and I mean, uh, Jason and Susan, and it's been amazing. In fact, people are talking about him like crazy, and he's in Hot Springs. It's incredible. And they're having this big dinner party, and, and, and I thought maybe you'd like to go with me, and we'll just kind of check him out. They're going to ask him questions. So we go. Jason and his wife and me and Carol Ann are standing in the room, and it's pretty good. Nice hors d'oeuvres, by the way. These are delicious. Hey, the punch is awesome. We're just having a great time listening to the questions. The dude is pretty amazing. We hear a doorbell ring, ding dong. We don't think of anything at first until we see who came through the door. What is she doing here? I lean over to Carol Ann. Look. She walks in the room. She doesn't look like the other women. Her dress is... But here's what's really scary. Jason. Jason, she's walking up to the special speaker. This is not good. And what blows my mind is his wife isn't doing anything. I think security should get to... I mean, protect this man. And then the next thing you know, she places her hand on his shoulder. He turns to see who she is. He stands and embraces her. That's the story that I want you to walk with me into this passage. Jesus is invited to a dinner party in a Pharisee's house. Look at it. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. And keep the story that I just told you in your mind. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. Now, time out. Let's just examine that for just a moment. Did you hear what I just said? I didn't say it. Scripture said it. Jesus went to a Pharisee's house and had dinner. Who was the Pharisee? Well, verse 40 tells us his name is Simon. Simon had a religious and a social status. Simon obviously had resources because he could invite Jesus to dinner and have a whole lot of people over his house. And if you've ever put on a big dinner party, you know it cost what? Money. No problem for Simon. He had all that. Simon understood protocol. Simon understood what it was to be appropriate because he was very religious. He, he had spent his life being religious. But before we get too critical about Simon, all of us need to admit that we have varying degrees of religion. We all do. We all have a background of religion. Amen. Come on now. Am I the only one? Anybody else ever been religious? It's hard to raise your hand in church, isn't it? One of the hardest things to do is to walk up and talk to a building full of church people. It's difficult. Nothing as dangerous as turning yourself over to religious people. They have rules for which they have no scripture. And the scripture they do have is taken so far out of context that you're like, Really? You're using that to back up that? Church people. Now, whenever a guest would arrive in a home like this, three things would happen. It was traditional that you have a guest over, and especially if you were a rabbi or a teacher, number one, and these are in your notes, you would pour cool cool water over the guest's feet to cleanse their feet of the dust and the dirt on the ground. Secondly, you would give... The guest, the host would give the guest a kiss of peace, especially if he was a rabbi. And thirdly, you would always drop some perfume on the guest head. Well, I want you to notice something in this passage that none of those common hospitality practices were, were done for Jesus, not a single one. Many of the people in this house, no doubt, were Simon's workmates. They were his family. They were his friends. 
Religion in that house was on display. Morality, decency, dignified, holier-than-thou people. And in sharp contrast to that, look who just came in the room. Whoa. Look at her. She walks into the room. Luke 7, 37. Look at it. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster box jar filled with expensive perfume into this pious, religious, holy environment, enters a prostitute, enters a sinner, enters, as the Bible describes, an immoral woman. But yet it seems as if she already knew Jesus. It looks like she may have already been a recipient of his grace. It seems like she may have already been forgiven. She comes to anoint his feet as an act of love and appreciation for something maybe Jesus had already extended to her. In the ESV, I've been using the NLT for this particular story, but I like the way the ESV has the beginning of verse 37. Look at it on the screen. It's kind of interesting because it says, And behold. It's like a shock factor. Do you sense that? And behold, a woman of the city. Kind of like, oh, this woman was bad. And behold, this woman came simply to worship Jesus. But yet the attitude of the Pharisee Simon was, what is she coming into this house with all of us holy people? I wonder if anybody's ever walked into our church and felt that way. She comes into this atmosphere against all odds. This unnamed woman approaches Jesus. She comes up behind him in Luke 7, 38. She kneels behind him at his feet. She's weeping. Her tears fall. She wipes them off with her hair. She kept kissing his feet. She's putting perfume on them. She knows according to the customs of the day that she shouldn't be in this room. She knows according to the standards of legalism that she should not be in that room. This is a sinful woman, and she is touching a holy man of God. There's been hundreds of pictures, artists, renderings of this woman. Like this. Just powerful. If you Google this, it's, there's literally hundreds of artists. Or like this one. But the one I want you to notice this morning is this one. It gives you the picture of the larger gathering maybe. What it might have looked like. A dinner table. Everyone gathered around the table. What's wrong with that picture? It's not Simon. I mean, first of all, it's Simon's house. And Simon was a moral Pharisee. Simon's not what's wrong with that picture, and not Jesus. Jesus was the teacher. He was the rabbi. He was a prophet. What's wrong with this picture is the woman. She doesn't fit. It doesn't seem like she really belongs in the picture. By the standards of religion, she shouldn't be there, but she is so glad to be there. Notice she doesn't seek his face. She seeks his feet. In fact, the Bible says that she knelt at his feet and she took the perfume out of that little alabaster box, that little perfume uh, jar, and she poured that perfume anointing his feet. This woman is about to practice hospitality at the next level. Picture in your mind the woman slipping in the door like we did a moment ago with Jason and Susan. She comes into the door. She sees Jesus. All she wants to do is give him a gift. That's it. She's got an alabaster box of perfume. I just, I'm just going to give him the gift and leave. But the closer she gets to Jesus, the more emotional she gets. She thinks about leaving But she keeps walking towards him. The closer she gets, the tears start coming. And they start coming. She gets right up next to him. And I mean, she can't hold herself. She just explodes with tears. And she falls to her face on the ground at his feet. And the tears begin to flow from her eyes like a river. The next thing you know, they're falling all over his dirty feet. Because Simon didn't anoint his feet. Simon didn't wash his feet. And this woman begins to practice hospitality at the next level. Simon didn't, but she did. She washed his feet with her tears. And then she just gets overwhelmed, and she's thinking, I've got to wipe his feet down. So she looks for a towel. She can't find one. She didn't bring one, so she unravels her hair. And she takes her hair, and she begins to wipe his 
her tears off of his feet. The dirt and the grime is filling her hair. She doesn't care. And she begins to practice hospitality at the next level. What Simon didn't do, she begins to do is she kisses his feet. He didn't get a kiss of peace from Simon. But he got a kiss of love from the woman he had shown grace to. The next thing you know, she takes that alabaster box that she meant to give him as a gift. And she thought, you know what, I've gone this far. I might as well just pour the whole thing over his feet. She breaks the box and pours the oil over his feet. And what Simon didn't practice, she practiced hospitality act number three. And she anointed his feet with perfume. The aroma fills the room. Everyone by now is aware that this woman is in the room. Her actions are absurd. They're crazy. All eyes are on Jesus. What's he going to do? Surely he's going to do something. If he's a holy man of God, he'll kick her out. We're about to find out who this man really is. Simon is over in the corner, arrogant, disgusted. Look at it in Luke 7 and verse number 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him to dinner saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. This is disgusting. He he questions Jesus' discernment when he says, if he's a prophet, he would have known this. This woman doesn't belong here. Why would this woman violate his religion? So we come to this place where all of a sudden, Simon is identifying who she really is. She's not holy. She's not righteous. She's not pure. How dare she mess up my house? How dare she mess up my furniture? How, how dare she, she, she come into my holy house? I was thinking about years ago when we would have bus kids. We had a lot of bus kids. In fact, some Sundays we had 500 little kids running around this property. Is that crazy or what? I used to get emails. Pastor, I'm just not really sure about these kids. They don't flush the toilet. Pastor, I just don't know if we should bring these kids anymore. There's toilet paper in the classroom. Pastor, there's ink marks on the seats. And pastor, the the building's just not as clean as it should be. Pastor, maybe we should. I would get those emails from time to time, and it kind of reminded me of the attitude of the Pharisees. I mean, just these people that come into the house, and and they just, you know, this place should be a holy house. And, and, And yet, Jesus is about to change all of that. Simon sees the woman weeping and wiping and kissing, but he had not really seen this woman at all because all he could see was her sin, her wasted life. But Jesus saw her differently. Why? What did Jesus see? He saw her heart, just like he sees your heart, just like he sees my heart. And Jesus is about to teach us another lesson on how to practice hospitality at the level, at the next level, which is what the month of April is all about. We need to love the Lord like this grateful sinner does. Then, after we love God like she does, we can practice hospitality the way that appreciates the grace that has been shown to us. This is the lesson. And then Jesus goes on to go even deeper with Simon. In verse number 40 of Luke 7, he answered his thoughts. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon answered. Then Jesus told him this story. Simon, a man loaned money to two people. 500 pieces of silver, equivalent to nearly two years of work. So 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces equivalent of 18 or 10 weeks of work to the other. But neither of them, neither of these two could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both. He canceled their debt. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon concedes. His answer? I I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt? You're right, Simon. The principle is simple. If someone forgives you, you love them. And if someone forgives you a lot, you love them a lot. This woman clearly loves Jesus a lot. The audacity, the tears, the affection she shows for Jesus make it so abundantly clear. 
And then notice the question that Jesus then asks Simon. Look at it in verse number 44. Do you see this woman? Do you see her, Simon? Now, don't miss this because I believe there's a message in this question. Because Simon's problem was blindness. He could not see who he was. He was the sinner. And the real shock is this. The real shock is that Jesus sees the heart of the woman and Jesus sees the heart of Simon and he's more disgusted by what he sees in Simon's heart than what he sees in the woman's heart. Simon's attitude to this woman shows and exposes his heart. And so the lesson is this. We need to love like the grateful sinner does. We need to love like this person who had been had received the grace of God at a level that all of us have received the grace of God but oftentimes we put projects before people people matter more than projects when or people should matter more than projects then look at Luke chapter 7 in closing verse 44 all oh, this is powerful then he turns to the woman and says to Simon look at this woman kneeling here when I entered your home you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet but she has washed them with her tears she's wiped them with her hair Simon you didn't greet me with a kiss but from the time I came in she's not stopped kissing my feet Simon you neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head but this woman she has anointed my feet with rare perfume I tell you, Simon, her sins, and and, and Simon, they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But the person who has forgiven little shows little love. What's the difference? What's the difference between Simon and the woman? It's not how they saw Jesus. It's how they saw themselves. It's how they view themselves. Simon has no sense of forgiveness. He has no sense of need. And yet the woman has such a strong sense of her brokenness. Church, involvement with people, especially the marginalized, must begin with a sense of God's grace, but not just God's grace to them, also God's grace to us I need to be melted and broken by the grace of God all over again grace what have you done grace what have you done murdered for me on the cross accused in absence of wrong my my sin my, my sin washed away in his blood it's too much to make sense of it all I know that his grace, it broke my fall. The scandal of grace, you died in my place so my soul could live. This morning, I ask everyone in the building, are you broken by the mighty, powerful grace of God, the work he's done in your life? We need to be again. Or are we like Simon? When we see the alcoholic, When we see the unemployed, when we see the addicted, when we see the immoral, you know how we need to see them? As a fellow sinner. As a fellow sinner. For such were some of you. We are all broken people in a broken world. And only as I'm daily struck by God's amazing grace to me will my life and words point people to Jesus. Jesus loved me when I was unlovable. He didn't wait until I got right to love me. Jesus loved me when I was his enemy. Jesus loved me when I had no interest in him. Jesus loved me when I didn't give him the time of day. And so these dinners with Jesus remind me to practice hospitality because I appreciate the grace that has been shown to me. A couple of weeks ago, I invited us all to be challenged by this idea of inviting someone over for dinner. We see that Jesus invited a Pharisee, Jesus invited a publican, and Jesus invited a prostitute to have dinner. Anybody in? Let's be like Jesus. 
If Jesus can invite all three of those to dinner, maybe you and I can be challenged to do the same sometime this month. Invite a guest. Invite someone you don't know. Look for a Mike Griffith or a Dante in the building. Someone who's been coming for several weeks. Maybe we've said hi, but have we invited them yet? Not just to say grace, but to show grace at dinner. With heads bowed and eyes closed, just a moment, we're going to worship and respond. And I'm going to encourage you this morning, where you're seated or at the altar, even after the service, whatever the Lord is impressing upon your heart to do, however he's speaking to you this morning, I want to challenge you to come and respond in your heart to Jesus this morning. If you've received his grace, you've been a recipient of his grace. Oh, listen, maybe it's time for us to kneel at his feet and just cry and weep and thank him for his grace. He saved us. He sees us. He's called us. Oh, he's calling us into his presence right now. Maybe you're here today and you've never been saved. You've never truly been born again. And this morning, God is calling your name like he called Matthew. He's calling your name. Follow me. Follow me. He's asking you this morning to become a follower of Jesus Christ. If that's you in the building, in the balcony, on the main floor, in the back, in the middle, in the front, I'd like to ask you in just a moment to step out. Give me the opportunity just to pray with you as you give your heart to Jesus Christ this morning. Turn from your sin. Repent and trust Christ as your Savior. This morning can be the day you do that. Several did it last week in the Easter service. The gospel's the same today as it was last week. And maybe there's still others whom just God is calling you to be more involved in gospel light, to practice hospitality at the next level. And maybe the first place God would have you to start doing that is across the street at the ministry fair. Right after this service, your response is going to be to walk across the street and say, you know what? It's time I got involved. People matter more than projects. Would you do it? Would you take that step of faith this morning? Whatever that looks like for you. Father, I love you. I thank you for the word of God. God, I thank you for dinners with you, God. You've taught us so much this morning in your word. Lord, you've poured out your grace to us this morning. In this scandal of grace, Lord, may we be overwhelmed again, maybe as we used to be. May it all, all, may it happen all over again this morning for us like it did for that woman who walked into that room and poured that entire box of perfume on the feet of Jesus. May today we pour out that kind of love lavishly from a heart of gratitude for the grace you've shown to us. Father, we love you today. We give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand together?